Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Success in Finance. Joining me today is Andrew Ring. So Andrew is currently the CFO at Hitachi Capital. He's going to talk us through his career to date with key themes being humility, uh, hard work and people management. He talks about the importance of always keeping your eyes open for new opportunities and having an inquisitive mindset. Uh, So Andrew's career started out at KPMG in their audit of insurance sector clients. Um, He then did a bit of time in business restructuring before moving into Barclays, where he spent eight years uh, across various roles, spending quite a lot of time in the commercial and FP&A space. Having done his eight years there, he then moved on to Hitachi Capital, uh, where he is at the moment, where he's CFO and has spent four years. I hope you enjoy listening to the episode and don't forget to subscribe, share and comment. You can also check out the Success in Finance blog and see confirmed future guests at successinfinance.co.uk. Thanks. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining me on Success in Finance this week. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Danny. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks. Great to have you. Um, do you want to kick starters then with a quick summary of your career today? Yeah, so to say, Andrew Ring, a uh, sort of finance professional, uh, sort of 15 years across KPMG, Barclays, and most recently Hitachi Capital. Um, probably described myself as a inquisitive, energetic um, finance professional, just very focused on trying to deliver efficiency in the back end so we can do more in finance to help the business make better decisions. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Andrew. Um, So I guess then first question, you did a natural sciences degree at Cambridge. What then um, sort of led you down the finance route? What was the, the sort of logic behind that? Yeah, the sort of natural sciences was about understanding how, you know, the natural world works. And I've always been interested, you know, about that inquisitive point, how things work um, and really enjoyed the degree. You know, and, you know, the most I got out, the the most important thing I got out of that was was how to learn. Um, But coming to the end of that, thinking about what do I want to do next? Um, I guess I just saw the world of business as something that interested me even more than how the you know, the natural world worked, and so wanted to take you know a similar ethos into understanding how businesses worked, and that's where the, the accounting qualification came in. You know, in, in when you know university, you know the numbers, the numerical, the the algebra behind it. Um, you know, the accounting qualification, again, the numbers, you know, that gives me a great entry into how does a business work, how does a business make money. Um, and that was the sort of the the germ of the idea of, of why accounting. Okay, interesting. You said something that caught my attention there that you sort of understood how to learn throughout the course of mm. your degree. Could you elaborate on that a bit? What exactly do you mean by that? Well, I just, I think that, you know, we, we have very long lives as humans these days. Uh, well, m- most of us, when we're lucky to dodge any COVID-19 bullets or anything else the world may throw at us. But you know, hopefully most of us are going to have a very long life. And therefore, you know, you're going to come across in numerous different situations. You know, people talk different things about having three different careers and all that may, that may come with it. But, you know, and, and through that journey, through me, whether it's, you know, 
in college, university, or in the world of work, the most important thing is being able to learn, both being humble enough and being interested enough to learn. And so, you know, when you talk about university, you know, this is really the first time where I felt that it was up to me as to how to go about learning. You know, it was up to you, to the responsibility sat with you. And obviously that's just been doubled down on in the world of work. And so, you know, through university, learning how my mind worked, how my interests lie, how other people did the same, and therefore working out what was the best way for me to learn was probably the most useful thing I got out of university. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting you say that, because I, I do think um, whilst at university I studied hard, I don't think I um, learnt in the most efficient manner, particularly for the yeah. first couple of years. But when I came to doing the ACA, that's when I really worked out, like you say, how to learn for myself. So just interesting that you raised that. Um, yeah. So moving away from that then, you you decided that you wanted that finance qualification. Was it the ACA that you'd specifically decided upon or or were there a few others that you, you'd considered? Okay, I, I probably, you know, well, so some people call it laziness, other people, hopefully I'll call it efficiency. <laughs> you know, it's very much, you know, when you're thinking about where to go, it, there is, you know, something about the brand name that comes from the big four. Yeah. Um, and so that felt like just a good first starting point and, you know, went and met representatives of each of the different businesses um, and, and wanted to see what they were going to offer, you know, in terms of that development, that learning opportunity, that insight, you know, the pay matters too. Um, and they just seemed like some really good options. So I didn't, you know, I said I made the efficient decision <laughs> that, 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 that it, it fit the bill of what I was trying to achieve. And as much as we, you know, it's not always the right thing, you know, brands matter, you know, clearly having Cambridge on my, uh, uh, on my CV helps having KPMG on the CV helps. It, it maybe shouldn't. And, you know, in, in, in the desire for a more diverse world, maybe other things should matter more, but unfortunately the practical reality is that it does matter. And so, um, you know, there is some simplicity that comes from having worked um, at a big four as a starting point. You don't have to explain from there. You know, it should be clear, all, my, all the best recruitment I've done has not been from the big four. But um, you start having the conversation about with people why they didn't go to the big four. Absolutely. And I know you say the brand does work, maybe it shouldn't, but I think, the reason that it does work is because to get a job at, at somewhere like that or to get accepted to do a degree at Cambridge, you have to have had something to get there in the first place. So it's sort of that second reassurance as well that that sort of, I don't know, the brand provides. So so I get your point yeah. there. So KPMG then, um, so you did insurance audit as well as some restructuring there. Was that sort of a bit of time in audit and then you moved into restructuring or was it just a mix? And and what was it about insurance that appealed or was that just where you ended up? Yeah, I, I was quite relaxed on my way in as to which, which industry I was going to be auditing. Uh, I was quite keen to be financial services, but within that relatively relaxed and insurance was suggested, very happy to, to take it. Um, 
and so yeah, I spent my you know you had the classic busy seasons. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, doing the exams and, and doing three busy seasons um, in insurance audit, but but coming out of that, very much aware that that wasn't where long term I wanted to be. Um, it had been really interesting being in outside the business, but I wanted to go and start building some longer term relationships and deeper insight inside the business. So it was, you know, looking to see what I I could do outside of audit, and, and a really interesting opportunity in the uh, insurance restructuring team came about um and so that's why i spent uh my last uh sort of six to nine months at kpmg was in the insurance restructuring doing very strange things schemes of arrangement for old asbestos um insurers okay that's interesting um we'll come back to restructuring in a second then so as you touched upon there, three busy seasons in insurance audit. Um, I know financial services is always sort of notoriously one of the, the longest hours anyway. So how did you find sort of big four financial services um, throughout your training contract in busy season, as well as juggling your exams alongside it? Yeah, I mean, well, you, you have to learn a lot uh, very quickly. But, but that learning a lot was less, I found through the audit time, was actually less about understanding how businesses work and more about how humans worked. You know, the, as you were you know, an auditor, you are not generally the most loved of the um, suppliers of the companies that you are going, going to audit and provide your services to. And so, as I said, it was a, it was a crash course in you know, people management, people engagement, trying to put yourself in their shoes, understand what their um, priorities were such that you could fit in your requests and your requirements into that. So the actual audit work, the number crunching, you know, I found very straightforward, actually. You know, the, almost the, the, the exams were harder than any of the numerical work that was being done. The hardest bit was building those relationships you know over short periods of time both with the team you were working with you know inside kpmg but with the, the clients as well understanding how their business worked from the people perspective who you needed to get the information from and how and therefore getting your requests fulfilled as simply and efficiently as possible that was the the most interesting thing i learned and that they were always said coming from a science background or very theoretical, thinking I was going into an accounting qualification or very theoretical, and then being hit in the face with the fact that there's, there's an awful lot of people involved and you need to understand how people work as much as anything else. Yeah, now that's really interesting because I, I guess, I mean, from my time in audit, I always refer to it as giving me a thick skin, which you sort of touched upon with the fact that you're obviously not the most... Um, preferred supplier in terms of what you're offering to the business um but yeah when i look back the the people skills that you develop there are invaluable and they have to be in order to do your yeah. job efficiently and effectively so yeah. i completely agree with what you're saying there yeah the hard the hard work bit of it i think that's just something that comes with the territory if you want whatever you do whether it's a footballer whether it's a politician whether it's you know finance professional if you want to be really good at it, you don't get there without putting in incredible amounts of hard work. You know, when people talk about genius talents, 
you know, obviously there's a lot more visibility these days about how many hours of effort they spent with David Beckham just curling a football into the top corner of the goal. I think getting more awareness now that if you want to get good at something, you need to put the hours in. So the hours have always been something to me that's a little bit, you know, tomato, tomato. You know, you want to be doing something valuable and you want to be learning. Um, but hours are just something that if you want to be great at something, you need to be brilliant at the basics and that only comes from putting in effort and time. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you mentioned something there about the hours. I think, I can't remember what the book was. I think it's called Outliers where they go on about a 10,000 hour rule. And I think there's another book that I read recently called Black Box Thinking that was going on about David Beckham just whipping yep. those balls on to the top of his garden shed over and over and over again. And like you say, that's how you get good at something by just doing the long hours. And that's why people that have that big four training tend to, to do well. Yeah. 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 You, 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 yeah. There's, there's, there's less, there's a little bit more. The hours are expected rather than optional. Although that in of itself yeah. is changing. Um, and obviously I'm on the other side of the fence now. And in some ways I think it's a bit of a shame. So much focus on, um, you know, doing right by people, which is incredibly important. But sometimes some people are really willing to put those effort in because they want to kickstart their career. So it's an interesting balance to be found. Absolutely. Um, so, so in that six to nine months that you spent in restructuring, then what did you find in that 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 you liked that was different toward it? Um, obviously, you decided to move on ultimately. So. I'm assuming it wasn't quite what you were looking for. Um, and if not, why not? Yeah, it, it just felt like one step closer. But, you know, one, you know, a permanent team, opportunity to really build trusted relationships with the people that you're working for because you're not moving around regularly in different teams. You know, it was its own challenge in order. You know, it was great fun trying to fill, build a relationship, you know, in short spaces of time such that you could trust each other. But the depth of the relationship is always going to be somewhat shallow when you've only got, you know, sometimes only a couple of weeks together. And suddenly being in a permanent team for a sustained period of time, you know, enable you to build up relationships, some of which I still have today. Um, so that was a big plus and, and something that almost, you know, demonstrated back to me that what I, you know, that I was getting, you know, I was, my feelings were correct. And the other piece was it suddenly being valued by the people that you were supporting, you know, in the restructuring, we were running the schemes of arrangement. There was no question about whether people wanted you to be there and providing the support. And again, that just re re-emphasized to me that I, I, those things matter to me. I would much rather be in a situation where your support, your contribution is valued than um, at times where it isn't, you know, I'd, I'd, I would definitely do audit again. Um, if you know, if I if I got to redo my career again, it was invaluable in terms of understanding. It's a vital um, thing to be done for the economy as a whole. But uh, some people can sustain that for a long period of time. That you know that that tense relationship with the customer that wasn't for me. I, I want to be a part of the organisation and, and that, that value to me helped me um, able to focus on what you're doing a little bit more. Absolutely. Okay, um, so after your little stint in restructuring then, so you, you decide to move on, um, like you say, to look for something where you can add value to the business internally. Um, so you went to Barclays uh, where you spent eight years. So what appealed about Barclays 
And uh, yeah, then we'll go into a bit more detail on exactly the roles you did there. Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, there's a common thread that runs through that, you know, that ability to learn, the opportunity to learn. You know, at the time, I still felt, I still, to be honest, feel like I'm quite, you know, the beginning of my career in the grand scheme of things. But certainly when I was looking at the role post KPMG and I wanted to go somewhere which had a real structured development program, leadership development um, and, and had many opportunities. You know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so obviously a large corporation gives you that flexibility um, within it and the opportunity to meet many different people. So sort of Barclays fits the bill um, and, that, and that point in time. Um, clearly it was an interesting time given that I joined on the 1st of September 2008 and, and so maybe some of the, the leadership you know, development programs weren't quite as well funded post that date as they had yeah. been prior to that but I still you know I found a couple of brilliant opportunities through that yeah um, so you went in as uh, into the group finance team as assistant vice president. Is that correct? Yes, AVP. Very grand title for junior dog's body. <laughs> it sounds very team. impressive, that's for sure. <laughs> um, um, and you sort of worked your way up to VP. Uh, yep. How was it going in, obviously, at the time that you said, and what, what did your role look like? Yeah, it was... Clearly, a lot of colleagues from KPMG took great delight in sending my e emails of you know, little graphs of the share price of Barclays, you know, showing that Andrew joins here, you know, 70% drop the following week. So, you know, and that, but, but, you know, as much as it was amusing, it always sets obviously context for what, what we're doing. But, at, you know, it may not have helped my remuneration over the next couple of years and the funding available for training programs. But in terms of day-to-day -day opportunities, it was incredible because there were so many different things going on that, um, you know, more junior competent people just had opportunities to take responsibility for projects in a way that normally, you know, more senior members of staff would have been, would have had the responsibility and you'd be contributing to. So, you know, four months in, I was working with the group head of strategy, you know, as I, as I was the finance lead responding to helping respond to the British Banking Association to feed through you know on regulatory feedback and and normally that would you know and i'd be my boss or my boss's boss that would have been on point for that but you were spread so thinly because there was so much going on that it just you know if you, if you prepared to get stuck in show some contribution show some capability and deliver what you say you're going to uh, there's just so many different opportunities um to grab hold of um and obviously, I was lucky enough to, to be in that position to do so. Yeah. So, so would you say basically then the the fact that, that it was a difficult time just meant that you getting stuck in and doing a good job meant that you could be that shining star um, sort of performing to to deliver whatever was put in front of you yeah a shiny star might be an exaggeration but but you know in an absolute <laughs> if you were if you were competent if you were keen and you were committed and you showed that there were opportunities i mean that's there's normally the case you know in most organizations but true the more dislocation there is the more change there is the more opportunity particularly for 
you know, junior members of staff, people that want to go places. The more opportunities there are in a in a crisis to 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 step up above, you know, where your natural pay grade was, as it were. Um, I think that's true today, being seen through the COVID crisis as well. Again, you when you get dislocation, when you get change, there are more opportunities to accelerate yourself forwards in your career. Uh, I think, yeah, I've certainly seen that too. With um, the two pieces, and that was absolutely the case at Barclays. Um, now, I certainly didn't plot out a career saying, "Okay, this is what I want to do here and here and here." It's about keeping your eyes and ears open, you know, contributing where you are, what you're doing, such that you have that respect, and then grabbing opportunities when they come, um, and you know, recognizing, you know, that that desire to learn that you know that, that inquisitive nature that shows you're interested somebody that's keen to facilitate change keen to be a part of it and when and you're at the front of people's minds when they, they need some extra help um and so yeah i was quite mobile you know whether it was helping on the annual report suddenly became you know responsible for certain notes to the accounts um when I was helping in-year analysis for supporting the CFO, supporting the um, forecasting process to the end of the year, um, you know, one of the last things I did in, in Group Four and Dan is, you know, responsible for, um, for the budget and planning process end to end. We were working with all the different business units. Um, okay, just uh, the more keen you are, the more interested that you are, the more committed you are, the more willing people are to, to ask for your help. And it's, you know, you're trying to take it into a virtuous circle. Um, and that, that means you're broadening your capability, broadening your knowledge, making you a more valuable contributor to the next project you get stuck into. Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting to hear. Um, so what point did you decide to move away from the group finance function then? Um, and, and why into... Barclays corporate into the sort of more financial planning and analysis side of things. Yeah, the uh, as ever with the opportunities, a certain amount of serendipity um, and a new group CEO, Bob Diamond, um, looking to take some um, additional cost out of the, the, the group. Um, and sort of over Christmas, I was the only one in the office um, for a period of time and, and given the opportunity to go and um, help shape that group cost program for a couple of weeks while you know whilst waiting for others to come back and again as ever you know a certain amount of serendipity the opportunity being available you know and then it's about grabbing it with two hands and so nine months later you know I'd been the, the finance lead for the group cost program working to, with um, you know two group executives uh, Philip Freeborn and Mark Merson um, you know, having identified the cost savings made a you know, noticeable difference to the group performance and given me insight from a, you know, obviously more focused on cost, but being much more operationally involved um, across the business. So, you know, giving me a different learning opportunity. But, you know, the real thing is Mark Merson was then post his stint on the programme, was going across to be the CFO for the corporate uh, corporate investment bank and wealth management sort of macro division. Um and so introduced me to the corporate bank CFO at that time and suggested that um, he should he, he might be interested in talking to me and, and, and therefore found myself in the corporate bank. You know, uh, so it wasn't necessarily this very deliberate. OK, that was the next choice. Again, it's put, you know, putting yourself out there, 
delivering effectively and, and people then find opportunities for you. You know, Mark and I had spoken about whether the investment bank was something I wanted to go. That, that wasn't really the, you know, if, if then the culture, the the brand, as it were, for that was not, didn't something that fitted me, whereas the corporate bank did something that very customer first, customer centric. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, you know, and, and, and hence, you know, Mark spoke to Paul Emney and, and suddenly that there was opportunity on um, financial planning and analytics. And it was a very natural thing for me because even you know, in group finance, you're inside the business, but you're still somewhat removed from where, you know, real customer service happened. And so it was a very natural next step, you know, in that broader career perspective into a in the business unit and getting that customer centricity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, how did you find that transition then um, in into the sort of planning and analysis side? I know you probably had a, a little bit of involvement in that in your group finance role, yeah. but um, a bit more hardcore once you moved into Barclays corporate. Yeah, it's, it's very different. You know, suddenly, you know, helped in some ways. I was in a face, facing back off to you know some of my own, um, you know previous colleagues in group. You know, a, a large part of what you do in when you're inside a business unit of a corporation, you know, a role like financial planning and analysis, there is um, direct support for the business and, and their internal decision making. But an awful lot of it is supporting your business leadership in terms of the flow of information uh, and understanding on both historic and future performance back up to group. And so that made life somewhat easier for me, you know, Obviously, having been on both sides of the fence, when you're trying to put yourself in somebody's shoes, you know, if, they, you, know, if you walk a mile in someone's shoes, you know, you can understand them. Or having having been one side of the fence and then being the other, you know, I had walked in their shoes. So, you know, that people side became much easier, understand, understand what people are trying to achieve. And therefore, um, you know, that you can deliver that relatively effectively, which therefore gave me the opportunity to be much more focused on just trying to understand this behemoth, you know, the corporate bank. What did it do? How did it do it? How did it make money? How did it differentiate itself against its competitors? And it's that, you know, that, 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 that again, that inquisitive nature, that desire to understand the business that then makes you better at your role better able to then support on an ongoing basis the business and that you know initially in that financial planning and analytics but then again it was was a very natural step from that you know global corporate role into you know the UK finance director role in the corporate bank again it's just a natural further deepening in my desire for knowledge and understanding the business yeah and and you mentioned that desire um to understand the business how exactly do you go about developing that understanding um yeah if you don't mind yeah i mean uh, inevitably given my background the the first starting point is is the numbers yeah and the first of all you know it's just looking at the numbers understanding the profit and loss account understanding the balance sheet and trying to break that down into the information that's not on the face of the financial statements but it's in management accounts what are the products what are the customer segments they're in? 
know, underneath the cost base, what are the different functions? How much, you know, where is the spend? Where's the variable spend versus the fixed spend? Where's the discretionary spend? You know, understanding all those pieces of information tell you an awful lot about the people leading the business and what they're trying to achieve. Um, and so that's always my starting point. But that next bit is then always about for people. You know, you don't have to spend time, you know, with that, you know, because you've got that basic understanding, you're not, um, you know, you can go and have a fruitful conversation uh, with people in positions in those different teams. And then, you know, you go and ask questions, but you can't just be simply just continuously asking questions, you know, it's just for your own benefit. You know, the questions need to be linked to how you can make their life that little bit easier, how you can make a contribution. Because if you're asking somebody questions and as, as, as the answers to the first couple of questions, you've been able to make suggestions as to how you make their life easier, they're more interested in listening to your next set of questions. Um, and, you know, so it's a combination with, you know, you've got that basic understanding, but then, then it's about people. What are they trying to achieve? being interested and, and humble enough to go and ask for people's thoughts and insight. Um, and you, you know, you steadily paint the picture of, of what the business is, what its priorities are. That's, that, that's beyond the, what's written on the strategy documents. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, thanks for that. So in terms of the, the different projects that you did do whilst you were in, the corporate team uh, i know you sort of made your way up to fd level there um you did something around the preparation of an, an external restatement of a new reporting structure is that correct yes the the joys of large corporates is they do like to do a bit of restructuring now and again so um it felt like a little bit of a, a merry-go-round you know when i the, the corporate bank was always, was always quite a valuable um, been seen as a valuable sort of gem, and so therefore you had the the two behemoths, the, the retail retail bank and the investment bank. And, and whilst I was at Barclays, you know, I saw the corporate bank move backwards and forwards um, twice. You know, completed the circle from retail to investment, investment to retail, retail to investment bank. So went round in circles. But the um, the last restructure was a much more fundamental one because of the ring fencing. Um, regulation that was coming in so it feels like a much more permanent divide and so because of that regulatory angle to it um, it was a much more rigorous restatement um, or permanent restatement than, than had been done before um, splitting out within the corporate bank the um, small businesses SME businesses that generally have simpler um, banking needs from those larger, particularly multinational corporations, financial institutions that have more complex banking needs, um, and therefore splitting those companies with inside the ring fence and without, but with the complication of all businesses, including banks, require funding, and um, different segments of the book have different um, net funding contributions, and therefore, um, when you're doing the restructuring, you're trying to balance you know, uh, business need um, with um, sort of customer simplicity. Okay. And so, as ever, you know, there's the, the numerical an angle to, you know, you're, you know, when you're the finance guy and people trying to do a restatement, they, they come first to you for the numbers. But, in, and you can either just be that 
vanilla response where they've asked for some numbers and here they are, or they can ask for some numbers and you can provide them as well as some insight um, and some thought. Um, and that's what I, again, aim to do through the restatement, make suggestions and make recommendations. But equally in doing so, make sure you're also directly answering the question. Absolutely. And what, once you've sort of done that restructuring, how do you think that benefited the business? <sighs> or, or, or question not because, at all if it didn't. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because of the... You know, because of the regulatory angle, it was it was very much a must do. Yeah. And being that, you know, obviously, you know, the business that I knew most, being the one that was split in two, obviously, you know, there was no business to benefit it didn't really exist per se at the end of it. You know, you split it into two parts and parts gone to the retail yeah. and parts gone to the investment bank. So... You know, the, the, benefit, the, the business benefit really was about making sure that we put the right customers, you know, the right side of the ring fence, and we did it as efficiently and effectively as possible. You know, the business benefit is not procrastinating and spending money for a long period of time on the project of doing it. It's getting it done, getting it done quickly, but getting it done right and right first time. You know, it's true on manufacturing processes as it is in financial services. Getting things right first time saves money. Um, and you know, having a process subsequently to move customers from one side of the ring fence to the other was, um, you know, it's always going to be painful. So, yeah, the, yeah, it was an odd type of project if you see what I mean from that perspective. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, okay, so I know, I know whilst you were there, you also were involved in a review of the low returning assets um, and and sort of made some decisions that led to. A material increase in shareholder value. Can you tell me how you approached that and how you went about sort of, I don't know, either tweaking those low returning assets or, or getting rid of them? Yeah, that's you know, most things you do, particularly in FS, you know, in London, you know, people's time horizons are quite short. I mean, you know, projects are normally three to six months, get in, get out, make a difference, move on. But there's also you know the the projects where think, you know, things are difficult and take longer periods of time and data and data cleansing is often one of those that you know particularly the banks got this legacy technology it takes a longer period of time and so when we talk about return on assets um you know for me what was that that was a two and a half year project from um you know most of the last two and a half years i was with the corporate bank it was about building our data infrastructure at a customer level in a really robust and repeatable way. Um, and so it was you know, taking your income statement and breaking it down, your balance sheets and breaking it down, your regulatory capital and breaking it down from, you know, what's the customer income? What's the treasury cost of funds? You know, the operating costs in a matrix environment, um, you know, there's direct charges you get from IT, there's indirect charges, but what are they? those costs? What are you being charged for and why? And then linking all of that data together such that you, you know, the relationship director, when they are sat with a customer, they can look at all the interactions that customer has with Barclays 
and look at the cost and and income and therefore profit consequences of those interactions to enable them to um, advocate ways of interacting with the customer that makes sense for the customer and for the business and building that data set you know, robustly, so it's available to the relationship director, but also supports pricing and portfolio decisions. That was, that's what I just think that finance is always, is utterly intrinsic to and absolutely fundamental to making good decisions. And that was the, the background and the context to that, you know, then when you're doing individual analysis, you can identify those customers that are, that, you know, not, that are not generating profits for you. Why is that? Is that because you've mispriced to the customer? Is it you've just given them a great deal? Um, or is there something wrong with the interaction? Because so often, you know, what I have found is that where a cost customer is unprofitable, it's not often that the customer has just been given a great deal. It's normally the way they are interacting with you is painful for them as well. Um, and actually finding a better way to interact with the customer. You can end up with a better customer experience, but also a more profitable relationship. And that's where that low R return on asset type analysis drives you towards understanding the cost, the, you know, the bad debt, the regulatory capital, linking all that data together in a coherent process. But difficult to summarise <laughs> in a minute or two. We said two and a half years of yeah uh, of project work but but it comes back to that being interested being inquisitive being relentless building the data um up with the various teams but you know trying to find benefits along the way but explaining the pe- people that are helping you with it from operations from risk from the sales teams what's the benefit for them in the short term what's the benefit for them in the long term such that people stay on board the journey yeah and and you mentioned the building data sets there as well. I can imagine that's something that you've taken forward with you um, into your role as CFO at Hitachi. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll get to that in a second. Um, so obviously you spent eight years at Barclays. You undertook a few different roles in different departments. Would you say, I mean, if you have the opportunity to move around in, in a big business like that, taking the opportunity is something you should definitely do yeah so why wouldn't you (laughs) yeah again it's all different people different parts of their career but you know i've said before we'll say many times again i'm sure that you know if you wanted to progress you need to learn you know in order to learn you need to be interested you need to be humble and you need to be competent um, and if you if you can do those things, opportunities will arise to continue to accelerate that learning curve. I think when you come into any new role, if everything or any new situation, if everything stays the same for a long period of time, that learning curve, you know, the gradient at which you know your growth is increasing, increasing, it's going to slow down. So that's not to say an individual role can't change in and of itself very rapidly, but absolutely can but um often that learning curve can be accelerated by taking opportunities um and moving between teams yeah definitely um okay then so why did you decide to move on from barclays in the end then and, and what appealed about hitachi capital yeah the 
you know, people are important. Some of the people that I um, had some great relationships with um, were were leaving externally. John Winter, the CEO of the corporate bank, Mark Merson, who I mentioned earlier, they were both leaving externally. And obviously that always makes you sit back and think. Um, I mean, in Barclays, over the period I'd been there, you know, I spoke about the restructuring, you know, felt like the merry-go-round had been completed twice, um, you know, for the corporate bank. So I felt like that that learning curve for me was flattening out. And so I was looking for an opportunity to, rather than being a part of a massive finance matrices team in a multinational corporate, to be singularly accountable for uh, end-to-end finance, financial control, FP&A, all the, all the various different points. And to be that in a rapidly growing business, um, the, you know, the, those were some of the key things I was looking for, and you know, lucky enough to be approached about the Hitachi role that has given me exactly that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've been at Hitachi for four years. Then what? What have you done over that time? What What was your day to day initially? I know the business has grown quite a bit since you joined, but when when you did join, what did your role look like, and how has it transitioned over the years? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, as ever, you know, you need to be very careful that you don't bring answers to your new business just straight from your previous, because um, they're, they're generally not going to be the right ones. You need to, again, go in, learn, be interested, um, and look at the current business. But but equally, generally, you're being, you know, if you're, if you're being recruited, particularly as a senior hire into a new business, there's things for you to learn. They're also recruiting you for a reason. There's knowledge, experience that you've had that, that they're looking for. So you've got to tailor it. It's got to be implemented in the right way. But it's about sharing some of that um, experience that you've had, such they don't have to learn it all from scratch again. So you know some of the key things for me. You spoke about you know that two and a half years of building a you know customer profitability framework. That's one of the key things that um, been working with each of the different business units in Hitachi has been building that customer and segmental profitability framework. Um, and again, subtly different moving from inside the corporate bank to now being responsible for the business in which five business units were, you know, trying to facilitate between the different business units that they're sharing what they're doing and how they're doing it strengths and weaknesses of the different approaches and the different models but that that customer level data um has been something that um very focused on um again so very much that uh, what, what finance is always the custodian of data but if data gets a finance stamp on it it often becomes much more trusted um in in the business um and so building that framework, if you've got the right data available when you're making decisions, then, you know, you can often make faster decisions and better decisions. We're certainly not there yet. Um, you know, there's always improving and you know, a growing business. That, you know, it's always you have to run faster to keep up with the new products being developed. Um, but that, that's been a big thing for me. Um, again, you know, it's about the five business units. You know, when I started, there were you know, finance teams in each of the business units and group that clearly needed to speak to each other but didn't necessarily feel like they were in all on the same team um and again that's been a, a big thing for me you know 
growing personally as a leader rather than just as a doer. Um, you know, there's about 85 people in finance in Hitachi and bringing them together, sometimes in person, but, but more often you know, we're in a variety of different locations. Um, five, yeah, five different locations. You know, so more often bringing people together in, in spirit on you know, that, that sharing what they're doing and how they're doing it. You know, common priorities, common focus. Um, that's that's been the the biggest learning opportunity for me at Hitachi um, has been like, learning to be that leader, not just a uh, not just somebody that adds up numbers. Yeah, and what what have you done to sort of develop and hone those leadership skills? Because I guess, as you say, yeah, going into that and having to look after a team of 85, it's quite intense, especially across different locations, so it can't be easy. Yeah, well, some some of it is um, you know, taking some, you know, some external coaching. Um, some okay. of it was... Uh, you know, reading and listening, whether it's, um, I have quite a long um, driving commute. So I, I listen to quite a lot of um, audible books um, as well as the sort of financial news. So, you know, it's reading and listening, taking specific learning opportunities, and, but also watching how other people lead and think back on how other people lead. But you know, for all of that interest in reading, you've also got to define your own leadership style. Um, think about who you are as an individual, your leadership personality. Um, and I was lucky enough to come across um, a particular writer. My mind's gone completely blank. As to, um, okay, but the, the name of the book was, was uh, "Turn This Ship Around." And um, it's just suddenly when you know when you're reading a book and, and somebody's articulating what they think and why um, and their ethos. And you're lucky enough to go. That's 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 exactly what I think, and therefore, you know, you, you've also, they've almost rewritten for you their thought processes. For it, obviously, a different industry. That was a, um, a submarine commander in the U.S. Navy. But um, you know, you you suddenly go and extract some of the key things from that because you know, I, I am many things, and an author of books is not one of them, and therefore. When you're trying to communicate to others what you think, your philosophy, and why, um, as ever, borrow from people that are that have better skills in particular areas than yourself. Um, and so, you know, took some of the the key thoughts from that because a big thing for me about leadership style is not just how you lead, but it's also letting other people know how you lead, how you intend to lead, and how you are looking for them to take the lead as well. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a firm believer in the fact that many minds, you know, well-led, um, you know, understand the situation are going to come up with better answers than single, very bright people, however bright they may be. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's it's really interesting that you say that because I've seen uh, one of the authors that that I read quite a bit of his stuff. He says repeatedly, um, "Why would you not sort of spend four hours and ten pounds?" reading a book of someone that spent their entire life learning how to lead or whatever it is the skill you're looking to develop or dedicated it to researching that area so in in reading a book over four hours you can take a lot out of that that yeah. that it might have taken you your whole life to work out otherwise yeah um, yeah so I, I, I absolutely echo that you've also got to be really careful um you know the in the 
people have normally written a book for a reason. And sometimes that reason is very authentic. Sometimes that reason is to make money from selling books. Other yeah. times it's because, you know, it, it's they want to influence people in particular ways. So I absolutely fervently agree with you that, um, you know, why wouldn't you spend the time, you know, whether it's listening to Audible, reading books, interacting in many different ways. And you need to, you know, there's, a, there's absolute gemstones out there. But at the same time, you also need to read it knowing that they've been in, in different situations and everybody that writes a book is doing it with a purpose and just be also you know, a sceptical, interested reader. No, that, that's definitely a good point, actually. Um, one that I'd overlooked. So thanks for that. Um, OK, so was there anything interesting that you've done in your time at Hitachi that you wanted to specifically draw out? I don't know about interest. Just one thing that I would I would share that again, you know, pride is an interesting. Am I proud of it or something? I'd certainly, you know, will look to do again. Um, something that, you know, the, the focus on the basics. There's a Victoria Cross winner I can't remember who spoke about. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to listen to a number of years ago. I spoke about that every extraordinary team is brilliant at the basics, and. That, you know, you, you sort of hear that you've just sort of that echoes in sort of in foot, you know, sports teams, um, you know, any different environment that about those basics. And it's, it's, you know, so it's always an interesting thing about how much time do we spend getting better at the basics? How much time do we spend monitoring and measuring how good we are at the basics? Because I do think if you don't measure how good you are at something, it's rather difficult to improve because you've not measured how you were before how do you know whether after you've made a change you're better or worse subsequently um and when you're in a a role like finance at times a lot of what we do is advisory um and it's very difficult to measure but equally that's that that's no excuse um and there are many things that we do that are also very easy to measure now how, how many invoices have we paid on time um, you know, how many manual journals did we post in a month rather than automated? Of those manual journals, how many were correcting journals? Um, you know, when you dig into it, there is an awful lot of data out there. And so, um, particularly with the group finance team, you know, really, you know, spending a lot of time thinking, I mean, what are the basics? How do we measure them? And a real focus of, you know, if we want to be a great team, if we want to be extraordinary, you know, it's not just about bring, you know, delivering fantastic, insightful advice that allows the company to to win a, a client tender. You know, the first and the framework, and almost which gives you the right to go and be a part of those interesting conversations. It's all comes about being brilliant at the basics. And if you want to do that, if you want to leverage lean Six Sigma, you want to leverage, you know, my, you know continuous improvements and my new games. Well. You need to measure how good you are at something, and then you need a relentless focus and, and an interest and a desire to be better. Um, and so, hopefully, that's one of the things that will be a a long term thing that stays in the finance team. It talks about you know being you want to be brilliant at the basics. Yeah, and and that definitely makes sense to me. Um, so, just before we start to wrap up, then, what's next for you? Andrew 
Oh, well, that's a, an interesting thing. What's next for me? Very much, again, um, you know, some people look at me as a, you know, as a, in a senior position. I still very much think of myself, uh, you know, I'm going to be working till I'm 70. So, I'm, you know, in terms of my working career, I'm sort of a third of the way in. And therefore, very much still want to learn, still want to be, you know, have that 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 learning curve at a, at a, at a significantly steep and so for me you know being in a um obviously kpmg you know um oh, my mind's gone blank of a type of um partner a partner owned business that's yeah. been in a publicly owned business in barclays in hitachi uh, particularly Hitachi Capital in the UK, it's an interesting thing. You know, 100% owned by it's Hitachi Corporation in Japan, but they're quite distant. So you know, sort of a, it feels like we are a sort of privately owned business in, in some ways a lot of the time, although they're split between you know very mixed shareholding. And I'm very much interested in you know the private equity markets. A very different ownership model um, comes with um, different focuses. Um, I think all businesses are becoming steadily you know, more and more technology dependent. Um, so, you know, very interested um, in working in sort of more of the, the technology sector. And, um, you know, some people are specialists at turning around businesses. Um, but for me, you know, the most fun can be had here in rapidly growing businesses. And there's more opportunities, there's more things to do, there's more opportunities to grow. So um, yeah, I think my, my next role is probably, probably going to have something to do with private equity, technology and fast growth. Yeah, definitely an exciting space to be in that combination. Yeah. Okay, um, so what advice would you give to aspiring finance professionals then? One thing is work hard. You know, I think we touched on it earlier on. You know, it's the you know you get better at things by by practicing, um, by learning. Um, you know, and people people you you know you get that personal benefit, but the people that you're working with can see that as well, um, see that commitment. Um, and it's interesting when I when I, I hear and, and read things around people don't always seem to to talk about working hard that seems to be you know less of a thing these days and we need to be really careful that we don't overwork people well absolutely mental health incredibly important but if you want to progress you've got to be committed if you want to have a you know a successful career you've got to work bloody hard so you know that would be to me number one be prepared to work really really hard um equally that comes with that. That doesn't mean just saying yes to everything. That in itself is its own foibles. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that now. Um, the next um, bit you know, is you've got to be interested in how the world works, and whether when when we talk about world, whether that's you know science, the natural world, whether it's an accountant, how a business works, or people. Yeah, you know, I think you've just got to be interested and inquisitive if you want to be successful be thoughtful about how people's minds are working you know where do people coming from put yourself in their shoes you've got to understand the business that you're working in you've got to understand the role that you're doing and why you're doing it um you know you've got to be interested 
in how things work. And if you're not interested, then I think you need to work in an industry that you um, or a role type you are interested in if you want to be truly successful. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Um, and then finally, three key attributes that have enabled you um, the success that you've had. Um, I, I could be really minor things on this rather than grand things. Um, yes. One thing, being able to read exceptionally quickly. Um, something that actually when I was at school was a, some, a very deliberately, um, you know, you, there are ways in which you can learn to speed read and there are ways you can develop that. And, and again, it comes back to practice. But um, an odd thing to say, not a grand thing, but an you know, incredibly powerful skill. If you can read at twice the speed of somebody else, um, how much more can you experience via books, but, but also how much faster can you read documents um, in day-to-day -day life? Incredibly powerful, but relatively minor skill. No, that's, I like that one, yeah. Um, another, another one is, is mental arithmetic. And if you want to be successful as a finance professional, if you've got a brilliant mental grasp of numbers, again, you've got a leg up. And some people turn around and say, oh, it's a natural bullshit. It's like, sorry, excuse my French. It's, again, it's like the David Beckham curling into the corner. You know, if you practice something and if you practice it relentlessly, you get better at it. So yeah. some things are harder to practice than others. Um, mental arithmetic nowadays is an incredibly easy thing to practice. There's so many apps on your phones, but it's just little things that you can do. You know, when you've got a spreadsheet, rather than instantly go to the calculator or you know, you, you know, use use Excel to do it. You know, it's just practice with your numbers, mental arithmetic, grasp of numbers. Because when you're you know in a senior position, you need to review a document. You need to have a natural grasp of does the document does the does it feel right? Does it you know, pass the sniff test? And that only comes with a you know mental arithmetic um, background. So that's something else I would uh, say. And then the last thing is probably more of a character trait. You know, is is being humble. Um, I know I'm not perfect. I'm a long way from being perfect. I know I've got a massive amount to learn. You know, massive amount to improve on everything that I can do. And it's because of that that I'm always interested in what other people have to say. I know I need to learn, so I'm looking for opportunities to do it. Um, again, I'm sure I'm sure I get caught short being too arrogant on, on occasion <laughs> as well. But it's, you know, those are the, you know, these attributes, sometimes want more of them yourself. But um, those would be, you know, Probably not the three key attributes everybody would first go to, but um, three incredibly important ones for me in a, as, a, as a finance professional. Yeah, and I, I really like the first two because people generally do go for, like you said, more of a characteristic than, than a skill. Yeah. But those first two are, are skills that you can actually work really on. work on and improve. So, yeah. so that's really good. All right. Well, look, Andrew, it's been brilliant to, to hear your career story and, and get some some really good insights from you so really appreciate you uh taking the time out to do this no pleasure thank you very much for inviting me on hopefully it's something i said in there somewhere would be useful to at least some you know, at least one person <laughs> that'd be yeah. my uh, humble aim <laughs> yeah no absolutely well i'm sure even even i've picked up a couple of things so goal achieved <laughs> thanks very much danny really enjoyed it thanks very much thanks, for hosting. cheers bye, bye.
So that was Andrew Ring. I hope you enjoyed listening to Andrew's story. He talked about the importance of being humble and always having that eagerness to learn. Um, He talked about the importance of hard work and uh, managing people as well and the importance of just being inquisitive and making sure that you're interested in what you're doing if you've not got that inquisitive approach and you're not interested in what you're doing then you're going to struggle to be successful ultimately so the three key attributes that andrew noted in achieving his success in his career so far were being able to read quickly um mental arithmetic and being humble so in terms of the first two they're both very actionable skills that you can work on so i really like uh, the fact that they have that element um, for development for the listeners so so do try and work on those things as always don't forget to subscribe share and comment and you can find the success in finance blog as well as a list of confirmed future guests at successinfinance.co.uk thanks